Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetic. As always, brought to you by Youth, your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Strauss. He's an experimental particle physicist. Um, he's also a professor at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. We're going to be talking about science and its relationship between it and God's existence. Dr. Strauss, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation to talk about um, how science relates to, say, the beginning of the universe and fine-tuning. Um, we'll even talk a bit, a little bit about kind of like, is science the only way to understand things and stuff like that? But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, as you said in the introduction, I'm an experimental particle physicist. That means I study the fundamental structure of the universe. What is the universe made of at the most basic level? and how does it all work? So I study things called quarks inside the proton and how they fit together. Um, I'm right now studying this particle that was discovered in 2012 called the Higgs boson. It was predicted by Peter Higgs and it uh, is a fundamental particle that plays a role in giving mass to other fundamental particles. I do my research at a laboratory near Geneva, Switzerland called CERN, which is the European Laboratory for Particle Physics. So. Um, COVID hasn't affected me a lot. All of my research is basically done with video um, meetings to CERN um, early in the morning since it's in the afternoon there. And then uh, on the computer, the way that COVID has really affected me is I usually travel to CERN four or five times a year and I haven't been able to do that. And as you said, I'm a professor at the University of Oklahoma, so I teach physics and that's where I conduct uh, my research on a daily basis. Right. Before we get into um, talking about like um, causal finitism and stuff here, I'm curious, you talked about studying like quarks and what the universe is made of at almost like the most fundamental level. So what is the universe made of? Like, what do you think of when you talk about like the fundamental nature of the universe? So over the course of the last 50 or 60 years, we've, we've developed something we call the standard model of particle physics. Um, and it basically says that the universe is made of matter particles we call quarks and leptons. So uh, many people have heard of quarks, some haven't, but every proton and neutron is actually made of smaller particles called quarks. And then the other major class of particles are called leptons. And an electron is a lepton. So um, a proton is not a fundamental particle. It's made of smaller things, but an electron is a fundamental particle. So there's quarks and leptons, and then there are particles we call force particles that hold all that stuff together. Um, things like gluons that glue the quarks together in the proton, and uh, things called intermediate vector bosons that cause radioactive decay. So from a particle physicist's point of view, universe is quarks and leptons, and then there are gauge bosons that kind of hold it all together. Uh, plus the Higgs boson, which is kind of a unique particle in its own right. Yeah, it sounds like so much fun. Uh, but for now, I guess we'll have to kind of hold that off for another time. But it's really cool to see um, what you're doing with your research. Uh, but I'm curious, just to start off before we talk into like some of these specific like arguments and reasons to kind of look at maybe say the existence. What do you see as a scientist, like this as a scientist, the relationship between like, science and um, like see the other and like maybe like a little bit of like your story and how you, you just see it all fitting together and the way God's kind of used you in your life. Yeah. So, um, I actually, um, my upbringing, there were two things I think that eventually got me interested in science and faith. The first one was that my dad actually was a pastor at a church 
And so I grew up hearing stories from the Bible and hearing the standard Christian message. We'll get back to that in a second. And I also grew up in, um, when I was young in Huntsville, Alabama, where they built the bottom stage of the Saturn V rocket that took people to the moon. So it was a very progressive Southern city in that there were, you know, educated engineers from all over the country who were working hard at getting humans to the moon. And that watching the space exploration in its early days um, just captivated me as far as the application of science and technology. And so I was always a person who asked the why questions, but I think it was really the space race that got me interested. It's funny, if you talk to a lot of scientists who are about my age and ask them what got them interested in science, the answer is the race to the moon. And so that's probably what started it for me. And then, you know, growing up in a, in a family that, that taught that things uh, about the Bible and Christianity were true, I've always been a skeptic. So I remember even in high school asking myself, you know, are the things I've been taught about in um, church really true? And so I didn't just accept them because I was taught them as a child. In fact, you're taught a lot of things you don't accept anymore as a child. I, I don't believe there's an Easter bunny or a tooth fairy or Santa Claus, but I do believe some other things that I was taught as a child, like don't put your hand on a hot stove because it will burn it. So certain things you're taught as a child have the evidence to back them up and certain things don't. And so as I became a young adult in high school and college, I really examined these things I was taught and began to ask the question, are, are the things I was taught as a child, am I going to believe as an adult? And then as I became more and more interested in science and in my education, I majored in physical science at Biola University. Um, for my undergraduate degree, I went to UCLA for my graduate degree in physics. And, and I began to think, well, if what I believe, you know, is true from my Christian point of view, that there is a God, that he created the universe, and what I'm learning from science is true, then somehow they have to really mesh. And there are a lot of competing ideas about how science and Christianity mesh, even among um, Christians. And so I began to look at those competing ideas uh, through the lens of both someone who had a strong Christian and biblical background and the lens of someone who had a strong science education. And I found that they actually mes meshed seamlessly and that the truths I had uh, been taught in the Bible and that were there actually agreed quite well um, with the truths that I had been learning and know about in science. And there's, there's some scientists who don't think that's true. They think the biblical stories like of creation and all um, are certainly fairy tales. They don't mesh with science. And there are some Christians who think that the biblical stories don't mesh with science. The Christians think science must be wrong. The science thinks the Bible must be wrong. But I found that actually they mesh quite well. And that's some of the kinds of things we can talk about tonight. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about um, two particular areas where it seems like the science and faith mesh uh, very well. The first of them being uh, the idea that the universe had a beginning, um, that there's a first cause, and if there's a first cause, there's whatever would cause it, which we think is God. Um, so when you look at like the science, um, for a long time, I think people would believe that the universe was like past infinite, but like, what are some of the scientific reasons that you think you and many other scientists are starting to believe that the universe was is in fact finite, in fact finite in the past? 
Yeah. So, you know, if you had asked me this question a hundred years ago, there was really no evidence as to whether or not the universe had a beginning. But beginning with Hubble's discovery that the universe was expanding, there began to be observational evidence that the universe appeared to have a beginning. So if the universe is expanding and growing bigger now, it must have started to expand at one point. Um, and so eventually Fred Hoyle came up with the name, the Big Bang for this beginning. Um, and the evidence from observations is overwhelming. Um, there isn't a scientist around who studies this, who doesn't believe the universe had a Big Bang beginning. But, but let me clarify that in just a moment. And the reason is because the observational evidence is so clear. The universe is expanding. Um, we can measure also the amount of light elements in the universe, hydrogen and helium, which are predicted by the Big Bang model. And then the cosmolog or the, um, co the microwave, the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, is is leftover heat from this hot Big Bang. And these pieces of evidence are so overwhelming. The theory agrees with the observations to one part in 10,000 that everybody believes there's a Big Bang beginning. Now, where you start to get controversy is what the word Big Bang actually means. When it was originally coined, it meant the very origin of the universe. But what we have now understand is that if you extrapolate the timeline back towards the beginning, we probably understand the evolution of the universe from a somewhere, you'll get different numbers, but let's just say about 10 to the minus uh, 20th seconds after some origin. And somewhere around 10 to the minus 30th seconds or so from there to the beginning. So what is that? A, a billionth of a trillionth of a billionth of a second or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, that short period of time, we really don't know what happens. So when people say the Big Bang, there are some people who define the Big Bang as like 10 to the minus 34 seconds after the, after the origin, when we start to understand the physics. And there are other people who still define the Big Bang as its original meaning, which is the origin of the universe. So it's funny, sometimes I will say the Big Bang was the origin of the universe, and I'll have a scientist tell me, no, the Big Bang is... 10 to the minus 34 seconds after. And I'll say, you know, it depends because mm -hmm. both terms describe the Big Bang. I once read a Wall Street Journal article that said the Big Bang wasn't the beginning of the universe. Well, that's because the author defined it as 10 to the minus 34 seconds after the origin. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a long answer, but I think it's important because if you don't define your terms correctly, then you're going to argue. Is the Big Bang the origin or not? Well, if I define the Big Bang as after the origin, then it's not. If I define the Big Bang as what appears to be the origin, then it is. But to be honest, nobody knows what happened in the first 10 to the minus 30th seconds. Um, now, there's also some theoretical evidence. The um, Einstein's general theory of relativity, when extrapolated all the way back to the origin, says the universe had a beginning. And there is a theory by three physicists, uh, Borde, Guth, and Vilenkin, called the BGV theorem, that actually says any universe that's expanding on average has to have a real beginning. In your words, it can't be infinite in the past. And so what I will say is that all the observations we have from science and all the calculations we have from known science, if you take the known science 
the general theory of relativity, the BGV theorem, and extrapolate them back. They all point to the same thing, that the universe actually had a beginning that it doesn't extrapolate back to an infinite amount of time. And if you ask me, is that 100% certain? The answer is no, because nobody knows what happened in the first 10 to the minus 30 seconds or so. So it's a long answer to a short question, but in science, nothing is, is sure. Scientists will say we don't prove anything, we only disprove things. Uh, because all you have to do is find one contrary piece of evidence and you disproved a theory. So all the evidence points to a real beginning. Could we disprove that sometimes? Yes, but scientists tend to go where the evidence leads and there's not a single scrap of evidence from either known theoretical science that we know is true, extrapolations from things we know is true, or observation that points to anything except an actual beginning. Mm. Right. So this is super interesting to me. So if we think about it, like as a scientist, like you can do this, I can't do this, but you can kind of like look at the models and break it down and we can look at like the big bang in the past, like uh, I believe 14 billion years, give or take, um, where we can kind of see what's going on with the universe. But then we get to like this billionth of a trillionth of a second um, after whatever you want to call that originating thing to where we can kind of know what's going on. And there's just this mystery. Um, so I'm curious, obviously you're a Christian. You think that the reason that there is this universe is because of God. How do we get from this idea of there being um, this seeming beginning to this beginning being God rather than maybe something else? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, so first of all, if this universe had a beginning, then whatever caused this universe can't be part of the universe. That's just, mm -hmm sophomore logic. And so immediately you come to something beyond this universe that, that caused this universe. Um, there are some theories that the universe didn't have a cause, but that, that's another question we can talk about. So if this universe had a beginning, the cause must be outside of the universe. That, that is what I will term transcendent. It it's transcends this universe. Now, you know, what is that transcendent cause? Well, you can start to ask what are the characteristics of that transcendent cause. And, and we're going to get into some of those. The universe seems designed. So it seems like the cause has some designer almost. The universe seems to have a purpose. So it means the cause maybe has a purpose. Humans have a personality, but the atoms I'm made of, the matter I'm made of has no personality. So mm seems like maybe the cause has a personality. And when you start to look at the evidence, the facts of this universe, this kind of personal transcendent, whoever started the universe must have the capability of creating a universe this large with this much matter. So that seems to be powerful. And so you start to look at the characteristics of the cause, whether it's and you start to look a lot like a god. I mean, matter is impersonal. And one of the big mysteries of the universe is why there was personality from impersonal matter. And so um, there's a great quote by Robert Jastrow about the beginning of the universe. And he says that scientists have scaled the mountains of ignorance. And when they reach the top, they they're greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. So mm. those of us who believe in God have been saying literally for millennium that there is a God who created this universe. 
science in the last hundred years comes to the conclusion that there is a be apparently a beginning, mm -hmm. a necessary transcendent cause that the science tells us has characteristics that look a lot like God. Could it be something else? Of course. So this is the other thing I think that I is really important. We don't, I don't base what I believe on possibilities alone, but more likely on probabilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's possible that you and I um, are in a matrix and none of this is real. It's possible that I don't exist and you were created five minutes ago with a memory and all mm -hmm. of this is just a figment of some memory without any reality behind it. I mean, there's lots of possibilities, but you base your decisions about what you think is true, not on possibilities, but what's the best probability. And all of the, all of the speculation about what caused the universe at this point are to me, infinitesimal possibilities, infinitesimally small possibilities. And the most likely probability is what the theologians have been saying all along. And there's other reasons. There's philosophical reasons. We might talk about some of those. Can you have a true um, something from nothing? Can you have a true infinite regress of causes and things like that? But to me, the God hypothesis fits the evidence better than any other one. And all the other ones, to me, are speculation without any supporting evidence. But the God hypothesis is not just speculation. There is other supporting evidence, historical and sociological and philosophical, that also mm -hmm. support that as well as the scientific. Mm. Right. And we're going to get into some of these objections and we'll hopefully get into another reason to believe that God exists. Um, so what we'll do now is we'll kind of go into some of these objections to like a standard cosmological argument. We will be doing questions at the end. So if you have questions, feel free to put those in. I do want to say, um, Israel, thank you so much for your super chat. Really appreciate you. You support the show. It means a lot. Uh, but let's get into some of these objections. There's a lot of fun stuff here. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is couldn't there just be an infinite regress? Um, you know, we could talk about how the model breaks down at this like very um, early time. So, but couldn't there just always have been like another big bang before this one? And we have this like, so on infinite regress. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, that's brought up. There's something called inflation that, or in or eternal inflation that would say there's this infinite number, but there's some real pro problems with it. First of all, the BGB theorem doesn't have any loopholes in any causal universe. So if you haven't, you can't have an infinite series of regress according to all the laws of physics we know. Now, you know, those laws of physics could be violated in some infinite regress. And then, you know, to me, there's the philosophical problem. And this is something that um, is debated by philosophers mm -hmm. more than scientists. But is there such thing as a, as a true, as a physical infinity? You know, can anything that physically exists really be infinite in this, in, in the physical world? We're not talking about a spiritual world, which would have different laws of physics. And so um, there's also tr real thermodynamic problems. Um, all of the um, evidence about the entropy of the universe, the second law of thermodynamics, says that even if you want to try to say there was a previous universe, you can't push it back too far. Um, there's, a, there's a secular um, theoretical physicist, Sean Carroll, who writes a lot about the beginning of the universe. And He's acknowledged that most of the alternative theories about how the universe began 
run into this entropy problem that is almost unsolvable. He had, he's in one of his blog posts I read or one of his talks, he, he talked about five of the major theories about how the universe began. And he shows that from a physics point of view, four of them are, are incapable of doing it because of the entropy problem. And so again, are, are there other possibilities? Yes, but the, this, the problems from a scientific viewpoint, and then maybe even from a philosophical viewpoint, and maybe from a mathematical viewpoint, become really, really challenging. Um, mm -hmm. To me, it takes blind faith to believe those things because you're believing them based on, without any supporting evidence. Pure, purely from a materialistic uh, or a philosophical materialistic view. Um, but the God hypothesis, again, I think has lots of other evidence that supports it. So, you know, unlike some maybe Christians who will say, you know, what I believe is 100% certain, I always say I'm a scientist. Nothing I believe is 100% certain. I'm not 100% certain that I'm not in a matrix. I'm not 100% certain I wasn't created you know, five minutes ago in memory, but what's the possibility of those? It's, it's really, really, really small. And so um, I think those other possibilities, including an infinite regress and universe from nothing, whatever you want to say, they don't have scientific evidence to back them up. They're philosophical, they're based on speculation, and they're not, to me, the most probable answer to all the questions that are brought up. Mm -hmm. Right, that's great. Um, another kind of objection I want to throw at you here is maybe the skeptic will say, okay, I grant you, maybe the universe did have a, a beginning. In fact, you know, it seems like that's what the science kind of suggests. And we throw the philosophical arguments and it just seems like it, there's a beginning, but there's all these other different versions of a universe beginning to exist. We have all these different models that scientists can come up with. And like, you know, we have Stephen Hawking and the no boundary model and all these different things we could throw at you. Like, why posit God when he seems like as a skeptic, you could say we have all these other options for kind of why the universe had a beginning. Yeah, well, you know, many of those options are an attempt to say there was no beginning. Stephen Hawking's no boundary condition is trying to say there was no beginning, um, but it doesn't even say that. It, it really says to me there's no singularity, but you can have a beginning without a singularity. So to, to me, that's really a poor excuse for a way to get out of the beginning. Again, the BGB theorem doesn't have any loopholes. The loophole of the BGB theorem is the throwaway causality. So now you have no cause for the universe, which is what some scientists actually are moving towards because they realize that the only way to have a universe without a transcendent creator is to have no cause for it. Yeah. Well, if I was to come to you as a scientist and say that anything that exists exists with no cause. You would think I'm crazy. The computer yes. I'm looking at exists with no cause. But when it comes to the universe, the scientist wants to throw, in some sense, throw out materialism whatsoever. Now the universe itself has no cause, which means it's unscientific, right? Science is all about cause and effect. And so in the name of science, they're completely throwing out one of the most fundamental things about science. So when you look at these alternatives, first of all, many of them have intractable problems. Many of them don't solve the problem itself to be like the no boundary condition. We could go into the details of why it doesn't solve it. Most of them don't solve the entropy problem as Sean Carroll 
will admit. And so, and, and none of them, none of them have any scientific supporting evidence. And so, you know, if, if you choose to accept that as the reason for the universe, an uncaused beginning or whatever, that's your choice. But don't call it scientific. And I wouldn't even call, and don't call it based on any um, evidence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's simply a conclusion based on a presupposition that everything must have a naturalistic, well, I was going to say cause, but it's not, it's uncaused. So it's not even a naturalistic cause. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really interesting because we'll get to it in just a few minutes, but I think Graham Oppie is kind of like leading theory on how this works. We kind of fit into exactly what you're talking about here. Um, but one more kind of objection I want to bring up that I see a lot more on like the popular level is that say, okay, maybe the universe um, began to exist, but we have um, energy or matter that may have just always existed. And the universe kind of the singularity comes out of like pre-existing energy or matter or quantum fluctuations or whatever you have, where you have this pre-existing material that would cause a singularity, which brings the universe which brings you and me. Um, so how would you respond to like that kind of objection? That maybe there's pre-existing material at the beginning instead of a God. Yeah. So what, what that is acknowledging is something has to be eternal. Now, mm-hmm. most physicists I know who would hold on to that would probably, none of them would say energy or matter are eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, most physicists who hold the universe from nothing like Larry Krauss would say that the energy of the universe is zero. And so you don't have any energy. The negative gravitational energy cancels the positive matter energy. And so the total energy of the universe is zero. And therefore you can get zero from zero. You can get nothing from nothing. Um, Very few, I, I don't know anybody who says energy and matter are eternal. But what they're saying then, if you get a universe with energy and matter from nothing, What they're saying is there are some laws of physics that are eternal. And I think most, um, most, there's always exceptions, physicists would agree that something has to be eternal. And now they're, they're going back to the laws of physics eternal. But, but as was pointed out by Stephen Hawking himself at one point, the laws of physics don't have any creative power. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. If I tell you the laws that are going to support the structure of this building I'm sitting in, the laws that support the structure don't cause the building to be there. The laws of physics are descriptive. They don't do anything. And so by making the laws of physics eternal, I'm not creating a universe at all. Mm -hmm. I'm describing in some sense, maybe how a universe came to existence. So again, there's huge problems with this. Um, And by making the laws of physics eternal, you're basically throwing out causality. Again, can I say anything exists without a cause? Mm -hmm. You would put me in an asylum if I tried to say anything except the universe exists without a cause. and so you're, you're really going to absurd lengths to avoid what seems so clear that anything that is eternal is different than the material junk we're familiar with because the material junk we're familiar with is not eternal. And so this leads to a transcendent type of cause with different laws of physics, if you can, you can call it that, or something that, again, looks a lot like God. Um, Again, one of Sean Carroll's um, 
articles. I, I really like him because I don't agree with him, but he's one of the, to me, one of the few um, opponents of any kind of God beginning who's really thoughtful in, in his ideas. And he describes basically a universe, you know, that is um, content, that is contingent. It basically has to be there. And when you get all done with it, he's basically describing God. He's, mm -hmm. he's not going to call it God. He's going to label it as some materialistic thing. But when you look at the characteristics, it's God. And <laughs> yeah. thinking, you have taken your good brain and your good logic to its conclusion. And you come to a conclusion that is more or less God. And, and you're going to try to you know, say that that is something, I don't even know the word, word natural, when it's not natural in any sense we know of. Mm -hmm. um, it's supernatural in every sense we know it, but but he's not going to say that it's God. Uh, I can't remember who it, who has the quote, but there's a quote, great quote where somebody is describing this idea, and, and he ends up saying, "This looks just like God," you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is great. And it, we're going to go um, to, it seems like, you know, when we look at these reasons, there's really good reason to think that the universe did begin to exist. And there's some sort something that's maybe necessary, eternal, that kind of causes the universe. And this gets into uh, Graham Oppie's kind of like response to this kind of like argument, a theistic argument where he says, okay, so we have um, the theist here that will pose that God is necessary. God causes the universe um, to exist. And the singularity comes as a product of God. And kind of what Oppie would say is, well, why couldn't I just say that the singularity is necessary um you know the theist will say that they have a necessary god i have a necessary singularity it seems like your theory is adding on god and the singularity whereas my theory just has the singularity so it's simpler um than the god hypothesis so this kind of like objection um to your view in terms of like what would be necessary how would you respond to this kind of line of thought my response would be that anything necessary is inconsistent with materialism Right. Materialism is cause and effect. It says that I can study what happens. I can reproduce what happens in the lab. Even if there are 10 to the 500 universes from string theory, I could reproduce that in the lab. But something that's necessary is antithetical to materialism. Mm. So again, in the name of materialism, he's he's proposing a God. He's, what do I mean by supernatural? It's an entity that is necessary and self-existent. Mm. Right? There is no such thing within materialism. And so these propositions are, are not necessarily the Christian God, but they're a deity in some sense by any other name. Maybe it's a pantheistic deity, but, mm. but it's a deity. It's not anything that fits within materialistic science that we so much um, love and practice because it works, because mm. it allows us to predict and reproduce those results. And that's because causality works. If I set up an experiment the same way, I'm going to get the same result. And so if anything is self-existent or, you know, um, necessary, then it's not materialism by any definition of materialism that I know. Of. It's not science by any definition of science I know. Of. It's it's leaning towards deistic.
Yeah, yeah, this is great. And this is what I want to talk to you um, with about the fine-tuning argument here for the last about uh, for about 15 minutes here because I think it's a really good compliment because like you can talk about its beginning, but then you look at like uh, the design, especially going to fine-tuning, it really kind of shows that there's really, it seems like there's a mind behind this. Um, so when we're talking about fine-tuning, as a, as a physicist, you do a lot of work in uh, the nature of reality. Like what do you see um, as merited in like the fine-tuning argument? Yeah, the fine-tuning argument is real. The universe appears fine-tuned. I, I will plug somebody else's book. By the way, I have a book called The Creator Revealed. I'll plug that. But there's yeah. a book called A Fortunate Universe by Luke Barnes and Grant Lewis. Luke Barnes is a Christian. They're both Australian astrophysicists. Grant Lewis is an atheist. And most of the book shows how the universe is, is fine-tuned. There's no doubt about it. It appears fine-tuned. Grant Lewis says it's fine-tuned because we're one of a near infinite number of universes by string theory or something. And Luke Barnes says we're fine-tuned because God did it. But the And one of their great quotes is that fine-tuning is not, I won't, I'll paraphrase it because I don't remember exactly, that fine-tuning is not a result of theists trying to oppose God. Fine-tuning is within the scientific literature in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, what is clear is that if you change fundamental parameters of the universe just slightly, the, the strength of gravity compared to the strength of the electromagnetic force, the mass of the proton relative to the mass of the neutron, if you just change these parameters slightly, we either have no universe or a universe inhospitable to life. And, and that's fine tuning. You could have parameters that were required for our existence that had a broad range of possibilities, but they don't. The parameters that are required for our existence have a narrow range of possibilities. And that is supported not by crazy theists, but by the scientific literature. Now, the reason for that can be discussed as Luke Barnes and Great Lewis do. But the fact, the fact that it appears fine-tuned and that there are fundamental parameters of the universe that must lie within extremely narrow range balanced on a razor's edge. That's a fact of science. And so um, there are people, again, who try to debate that. And try, um, Victor Stanger tried to write a book that said the universe is not fine-tuned. The book failed miserably, and I, we could talk about that. Um, the universe is fine-tuned. Now, the reason for it can be, you know, discussed. But again, if, if theists have all long ago says the universe is designed by God to work in fact, the Bible is full of examples that point to God where the universe just works so wonderfully. Um, maybe, maybe the most obvious solution is the right solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is great. And one kind of, um, I think it'd be helpful at this point just to talk, just maybe give an, a quick example or two of what we're talking about with regards to fine tuning. Because I think a lot of people, if they're skeptics, they may think, you know, like, well, our universe has life, but the universe is lifeless, it seems like outside of us. Um, so talking about how these constants actually relate to like the fundamental nature of like the beginning of the universe and such. And like, what are these fine tuned constants? Yeah, so, you know, some of the things are with, if you don't fine tune them, you don't even have a universe. Um, the amount of matter in the universe um, was fine tuned to one part in 10 to the 60th shortly after in the first you know, fraction of a second. So if you had changed the amount of matter by one part in 10 to the 60th, the universe would have either expanded too fast if you took matter away or, con or, not, or contracted too quickly if you added matter and there wouldn't even be a universe. 
But the other thing I often hear is, well, you're being very, uh, you know, human centric is that you're saying that this universe, you know, if you change anything, life couldn't exist. And you're talking about human life. But I'm not. I'm talking about any life because what we know is that life requires information. The only way we know to store information in a molecular level is with carbon. It's the only uh, molecule, the only atom that can create long enough molecules to store information. The Horta on Star Trek, which is a silicon-based life form, couldn't be real. Um, on Star Trek, the next generation, there's a light-based life form that couldn't be real. And so as soon as you say the only molecule we have in this universe that could support life is carbon, you start to have very, very tight constraints on what kind of environment you could have. And so I'm not being human centric when I say that, you know, Earth is a, is a unique place and that it's very hard, you know, that um, the parameters for life are very narrow. I'm just being universe centric. I'm saying that let's take the universe we have and the parameters for supporting life are very, very narrow. And, and that's just the facts. And, you know, it's, it's not being human centric. It's being scientific and looking at what is required for any kind of life in this universe as we see it. Yeah, this is great. Um, and one kind of objection I want to throw out is like, how could we know these constants could have been different? Obviously, like we only have one universe we can look at. We can only see like our gravitational constant or our strong nuclear force or things along these lines. Like, how do we know these constants could have been different? Couldn't they maybe just be like necessary or there's really no reason to think they could have been different than they are now? Yeah, so, um, you know, we don't know. Again, that's always the answer. We don't know. We, we have evidence. And, and if you, there are some ideas that in string theory, there's, you know, a landscape of 10 to the 500 uh, possible universes, depending on how you interpret the landscape. And that, but we wouldn't even know if all those would have different laws of physics or the same laws of physics or what most people think they would have different laws of physics. Um, so what we do know is that Currently, there doesn't seem to be any reason why the constants have to be what they are. So we know that now. But let's, let's suppose someday we find something, some law of physics that forces the constants to be exactly what they need to be for life. Does that take away fine-tuning? If you have a mechanism that does exactly what it's supposed to be to produce an outcome, does that take away fine-tuning? That would be like walking into an auto factory and saying, well, I don't see a single human. I just see robots doing all the welding. So there must be no intelligence behind this because, you know, the robots are just doing what they have to do. The laws of physics tell them to do. Mm. I mean, that's crazy. If you have a mechanism behind something that is so finely tuned that it works, the mechanism, mm -hmm. the mechanism itself is fine-tuned. And so to me, if, if we were to find a law of physics that forced the constants to be what they are, life-friendly, then you haven't solved the problem. You've just pushed it back one step. And so the fine-tuning is real. And mm -hmm. the mechanism we don't know, is it random constants that an intelligent designer programmed? Is it one of 10 to the 500 universes? Is it forced necessary because of the laws of physics? But all of those things are examples of intelligence behind the process by which we get the life-friendly universe. Mm. 
Yeah, this is so great. And I think we'll have one more question here before we go to a little bit of live Q&A. So if questions or super chats, feel free to put those in. Um, but fine-tuning just so amazing. But one kind of thing I like to talk about anytime I'm talking with anyone who's a scientist is uh, at least in like the online skeptical community, I see a lot of the idea that we need this like empirical basis for everything that we believe. Like, you know, in science, like things like observations and demonstrations and making predictions and hypotheses, and um, they're all just so important to discover in truth. And then if we look at it, let's say like the God claim that there's a necessary mind that creates the universe, it would seem like the skeptic would say, hey, we don't have any of this empirical evidence that God exists. We can't see that God exists. There's no demonstration. We can't prove it. Um, so we shouldn't believe it. So it seems like it's almost like scientism. So like, how would you respond to this kind of um, objection? Because obviously you're a scientist who believes in God. Yeah, so the first thing I would say is what do you mean by empirical evidence, mm, right? Yeah you mean reproducible evidence in a controlled environment. Well, if that's true, I can't prove to you I breakfast this morning because I can't do anything that's in the past in a reproducible way, you know? And so I can't prove to you that my wife loves me, you know, empirically, if you mean the scientific method. So what I would say is I'm a logical skeptic about everything. I need evidence for everything I believe. The reason I don't believe in the Easter Bunny anymore is because I don't think there's sufficient evidence for it. Um, mm. That evidence comes in lots of forms. The evidence that um, my wife loves me is not scientific empirical evidence that can be tested in a test tube. You know, um, no historical piece of evidence is is truly can follow the scientific method. Now, there is a scientific, um, you know, you do follow the scientific method in that you make hypotheses about what happened in the past based on knowledge and you then look for evidence of that. But it can't be, you can't reproduce it in the laboratory, which at least in a strict definition of the scientific method is what it's all about. And so um, do I believe that you should believe something without evidence? Absolutely not. Mm. If you believe something without evidence, that's not faith, that's stupidity, right? Mm. If you get a um, email from a Nigerian prince asking you to send him $100,000 and you have no evidence that that prince is trustworthy, it's not faith to send him the $100,000, it's stupidity. Now, mm. what's the evidence that there is a God? Well, as we've talked about, there's tremendous scientific evidence that this universe had a transcendent cause. There's tremendous scientific evidence that this universe appears designed. There's tremendous um, historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. There's tremendous sociological evidence that says the cause of many of our problems in society are not external, but internal to human nature. These are things that point to the ideas that are found in the Bible and the Christian God. Now, you know, um, therefore, I would say what I believe is based on empirical evidence, the same way that um, I base all my decisions. When I get in the car and drive to work, um, there is a possibility that, or when I'm driving home late at night, that, you know, the, the car coming neck towards me has a drunk driver and is going to cross the line and hit me and I'm going to die. But the evidence suggests and that's not scientific evidence, right? Because mm. I can't test that driver. The evidence 
suggests that most drivers are not going to be that way. So I get in the car and I drive home. And so that's empirical evidence. It's not scientific methodological evidence in the strict scientific method, whatever. Um, But it is empirical evidence. And I would say that's the same thing. The reason I am a Christian as an adult is not because I was taught the tenets of Christianity as a child. It's because the evidence, the empirical evidence Mm. um, from science and sociology and history um, points to the God of the Bible being real and alive and that, and Jesus being that incarnation of that God. And and that's why I'm a Christian. If, if you tell me it's based on evidence, I will argue, but not based on evidence. In fact, I write a blog and, and I have a critic who says, you know, it's not based on evidence and, and he's wrong. Um, mm. If I don't have evidence for something, I won't, be- I won't believe it. In fact, I've talked about my wife a few times. She hates this. She'll say something and I'll say, well, why do you think that's true? You know, bring me the evidence. He goes, can't you just believe me? And I say, well, I don't believe you. I want to understand why you, know, yeah. you believe that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, what I believe in my religious belief is based on empirical evidence. It's based on historical evidence. It's based on philosophical, logical evidence. It's based on what I see in society, so sociological evidence. And yes, it's based on scientific evidence that points to an intelligent, transcendent creator and designer. Yeah, awesome. Now we're going to hop to a little bit of Q&A here. So if you have questions, super chats, we'll get through as much as we can in about the next 10 minutes. Um, one from Jesse, which says, how can we see God as the creator in terms of divine simplicity? I was talking with Stephen Nemesh, and he talked about how God is not a thing in itself. Um, God is not a thing in itself and wondering how this relates. So uh, do you have any takes on like divine simplicity or is this kind of something that's kind of like outside of your area when thinking about like the nature of like God? Well, I guess the divine simplicity question is really one of, um, you know, you know, like um, who brings it up? Richard is a Richard Dawkins who brings up the idea that, you know, the first cause has to always be more simple and God is not the most simple. Right? Um, I think I think in this with what um, I think there's different versions, but with Jesse's question is there's this view it's very prominent especially in like um, like early church history and Catholic theology where God has no parts, um, so like God would be eternally immutable, eternally timeless, um, things like that, and then he is like identical to himself, like his essence and his existence is the same thing and things along those lines. So it's a little bit more of like the nature of God kind of is the question. What's the term? I I guess, you know, I'm not a theologian. What does simplicity actually mean? Um, It would, I don't have the exact definition of it, but it's kind of like the idea that God has no parts. He's completely simple. Um, It'd be like the classical theist tradition. So so what I would say is God is unlike us. God Mm -hmm. is spirit. We don't know what that even means. Um, Whenever you try to define God in human terms, you are um, missing the mark. And so, you know, for me, I think it's kind of crazy to speculate on what an eternal, self-existent, spiritual being is like in terms of simplicity or complexity or parts. I mean, I don't know the answer. Um, mm-hmm. If I knew the answer, I would probably be God myself. Um, and, and and again, the, the you know the idea that 
again, Richard Dawkins, that you know we get complexity from simplicity, so the first cause has to be most simple. Why? You know, and, and I understand what he's saying in the sense that he's saying, well, you can't start out with this self-existent, most complex. And I would say, well, why not? You know, if, if there is a God, mm -hmm. what rules are you imposing on him based on your understanding of the finite created world universe that we have? And so, again, I, I'm sorry that I don't totally understand the question, but um, I, I just think that when you start to... Um, ascribe things to God, and then based on your ascribing those, you run into philosophical problems. Well, maybe the problem isn't yeah. God. Maybe the problem is what you are ascribing to God. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you for kind of going through that, even though obviously it's a little bit out of your expertise. But another question here from Travis Lee, which says, uh, do you think there's any merit to the holographic universe, the idea that the universe is a 3D production of 2D information processing? Yeah, so... Who knows? We're learning things about the universe all the time. I, I don't even, you know, I understand what this is saying to some degree, but I don't totally understand it completely. And why don't I understand it completely? Because I live in 3D, right? <laughs> if you've ever read the book Flatland by Edwin Abbott, you understand that someone who lives in 2D cannot even begin to comprehend 3D. And we know only, we can only really comprehend what we can experience. And so I think this is information, right? Because to me, the key word in this question is information processing, right? Now, now some people want to try to say that we are just a computer simulation because we're based on information. But again, where does information come from in your experience? It comes from a mind. And so what this is telling me, even posing the question like this, is everything we see points to an outside mind. I, mm. I once saw a YouTube video that one of my uh, my uh, blog followers sent me that tried to look at this question and say, well, we are just a computer simulation. But the, the other way to look at it is, yes, there is an external mind out there. Mm. And that's yeah. necessary for our universe to exist. And again, that's what theologians have been saying for millennia, that there's an external mind out there that it's necessary for our universe to exist. So the universe is much stranger than we imagine. Quantum mechanics is much stranger than we imagine. Who knows what some of the, which, which if any of these speculative ideas will pan out. But here's what I do know. In the years, in the centuries, as science has learned more and more about the universe, the evidence for a God, a deity like the God of the Bible continues to get stronger with every scientific discovery, not weaker. And even some of those scientific discoveries that people initially think, oh, this is going to remove the need for God, ultimately they don't. And so if I was a betting man, I would bet that even these speculative ideas, if they come true, the multiverse, I could tell you, show you why the multiverse might actually increase the case for God rather than decrease it. And so far, every time we discover something new, it's increased the case for God. And if this is true, if this turns out to be true, then I would say that's what it would do. Ultimately, as we understand it, it would increase the case for information, a mind out there processing our universe somehow. Hmm. Right. We do have time for one more question um, from Finding to Truth. Santi says, um, what do you think about the puddle analogy? Um, as Israel mentions, the ultimate refutation of our Christian faith. So what is your thoughts on the puddle analogy in regards so to fine tuning? I don't want to, you know, really criticize anyone, but 
anyone who brings up the Poe analogy doesn't understand analogies or doesn't understand what the fine-tuning argument is. Mm. Here's the, the, the puddle analogy, for those who don't know, is it's that, you know, the puddle looking at the hole he's in and saying, the hole is made perfectly for me because I fit into it perfectly, therefore it must be designed. Mm. But, but that's crazy, and here's why. It's, please don't use it if you're an atheist. Please come up with something that actually makes sense. Mm. Because water will fit in any container, mm. but life cannot fit anywhere. And everyone agrees with that. The criteria for life are extremely, extremely narrow. The puddle can fit anywhere. There's no criteria for where a puddle can look. Any puddle that's scientific will look at the surroundings and go, you know what? It doesn't matter what the shape of this is. I'll fit into it. But any scientist who looks at the criteria for life says, you know what? It's really, really hard to get life. If there are 10 to the 500 universes out there, almost none of them have life. The puddle analogy is the worst. I mean, there are good arguments for why you might be an atheist or why you might not believe in fine-tuning. Well, there's not great arguments for why you might not believe in fine-tuning. There's arguments for why it might not be God. But the puddle analogy is one of the worst things I've ever heard to try to describe it because the analogy stinks. The puddle, a scientific puddle, would really know very quickly that he could fit anywhere. But a scientific life form knows very quickly that it's very, very hard to create a universe for life. And it's not just I happen to fit in this one. Now, there is the weak anthropic principle or the selection effect. That is that I've, I'm here, so therefore the universe must be life friendly. But that's not what the puddle analogy says. The puddle analogy is saying I'm here because it fits me perfectly. And, and it's just a terrible analogy. Mm. Right. So thank you so much for breaking that down. Um, we are around at the end of our time here. So I do want to say thank you. Uh, we have a super chat from Santi Fine Truth. It says, thank you. You and Dr. Krauss are awesome. Dr. Dr. Krauss, you're not Lawrence Krauss. You're Dr. Str Michael Strauss. Dr. Strauss. You said we should have a Strauss-Krauss debate sometime. So, okay, we can do that. Yes. <laughs> That'd be a fun debate. Would you be up for talking with Lawrence Krauss? That'd be pretty fun. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> There would have to be some ground rules. Lawrence Cross debate many times. There'd have to be some ground rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, another great um, scientist. But Dr. Strauss, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so much fun. You're a lot more awesome than I am, and kind of talking um, and spending a little bit of time out of your day, even though you could be um, working in like that groundbreaking nature of reality. Just talking with me and everyone else can listen for a little bit. So thank you so much. Is there any kind of like last thoughts you want to share? And just feel free to plug how people can like follow you and stuff. Yeah, well, thanks, Zach. Um, yeah, just if you're interested in these kind of conversations, I, I have written a book. It, um, it describes how the biblical account of creation and the origin of the universe we know of the Big Bang fit together nicely. It's called The Creator Revealed. I write a blog, just my name, michaelgstrauss.com, and those are great ways to get in touch with me. Right. And thank you so much for joining me today. There is a link to Dr. Strauss's website down below so you can follow his blog and keep in touch. Um, so you can be sure to do that. It's a great blog. And I encourage you, everyone, if you're new to here in Apologetics, feel free to subscribe. Appreciate your support as we keep on going. Thankful for everyone um, who tuned in today. Leave a like, leave a review. Uh, thank you to Santi and Israel for Super Chats that meant a lot. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. Right now, we're about 83% funded, so you can join the team there. Uh, one, two, three dollars a month also help. There's also yearly options available, so that is um, very helpful. Do you have time for one more question? Very 
quickly, Dr. Strong. All time you want. So. <laughs> All right. Well, now we're going to have four more hours of questions after I do that outro. Um, no, and I have nothing better to do tonight. So let's go. <laughs> All right. So we'll do a couple, even though I just did like the entire outro, they did something that popped up. So I was like, well, we can get this in. Um, Israel Fanon has another super chat. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. And he says, can you expand on Sean Carroll's position and your refutation, like a bit more on his objections and how he defends his position? I'm guessing it's referring to like his view of the origin of the universe. Yeah, so um, yeah. it it's been a while since I read the article. I have a blog, couple blog posts on it. Um, but he talks about you know various options for the origin of the universe, and um, one is God, the, the God hypothesis, and he just dismisses that outright, basically. And I don't remember all the other. I think he has five, and the last one is basically that it's necessary, that it's just uh, you know. It's. I think. I think his terminology is it's brute force. It just exists because it exists. And again, you can go read the blog post on it. But ultimately, really, what he's saying is is that this looks like God. Um, and you know, and there's no scientific basis. So it, it's interesting when someone who is thoughtful looks at the alternatives. First of all, he just the only alternative he doesn't look at with any seriousness is the God hypothesis. Mm. So he looks. All the other, I mean, think about this. This is Sean Carroll. He's really a smart theoretical physicist. And all of these other, all of these other options that you've brought up tonight, he looks at and he explains why they don't hold water. Yeah. His solution is this is a scientist. His solution is the universe is just brute force. Mm. Right? Again, if I was to say anything else was brute force as a scientist. You would say you would say that's blind faith with no evidence. That's really mm. stupid. But when you you know say it as a scientist because because you've dismissed the God hypothesis and shown that every other naturalistic hypothesis doesn't work, and your only final alternative is brute force, you go, wow, well, that must be the answer. Well, I, I would say that's not the answer. Maybe you shouldn't quite dismiss the God hypothesis so quickly. And the reason he does, I forget, I have to go read the article. It's just, it's a trivial objection that any theologian and any scientist who knows anything about what the Christian God is like could easily refute. Um, and again, I, I have two blog posts that talk about this. Just go to my blog and type Sean Carroll in the, the search window. And so, you know, for, for a scientist of his magnitude to look at all the other options that are brought up by those who don't believe in God and to say they don't work, the only real option is brute force mm -hmm. um, because I've dismissed God. That should tell you something if you're mm -hmm. someone who's really seeking for the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for taking a little bit more time to answer that question, Dr. Strauss. Um, and yeah, I think we're going to hopefully be at the end here, even though I appreciate your time sticking around a little bit longer to have answer that one more question. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Strauss. Thank you, Zach. And if you ever want me back, we'll come back and we'll do it again. Uh, for sure. I'm sure we'll be talking at some point in the future. There's so much we could talk about and it's just so much fun. So thank you again for coming on. I encourage everyone to follow Dr. Strauss on his website. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Israel, Santi, Travis Lee, everyone have a good one and God bless.